the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. All-time heat records and low precipitation are creating problems for people in the Northwest. Washington Governor Jay Inslee tells TVW hot, dry conditions will mean water shortages and more wildfires into the autumn. Our spring and summer were historically dry before this record heat wave passed through. Unfortunately, the forecast through. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, easy does it now. Be careful, proceed with caution, because two hours of engaging talk radio coming your way right now. Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is, of course, the Thursday July 15th edition. My goodness, is it the Ides of July? I don't know. <laughs> I know that works for March. July, I'm not so certain about. But I do know it's just about five minutes after five on your clock. And it's Craig Roberts on your radio welcoming you to another edition of Lifeline here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. Addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We'll do more of that on today's program, I want to lead off with a dear friend and a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. We have had this show on the air, my goodness, 32 years now. We'll start our 33rd year uh, in November, provided the crick don't rise and they don't, uh, the police don't catch up with me. <laughs> and I think for probably the lion's share of that time, um, Brian Johnson has joined us from the National Right to Life Committee and the California Pro-Life Council to give us insights into pro-life-related matters from cradle to grave. Of course, he also keeps us abreast of what's going on in both Sacramento and in Washington, D.C., as it relates to caring for those that are most vulnerable in our society today. And, of course, as we all know, that is becoming an ever-increasing task. A lot to talk about stateside here in California. We have, of course, officially a gubernatorial recall election slated for um, just a couple of months from today. The 14th, I can think it is, of uh, September will be the recall election. And uh, while we don't want to get overtly political, we do want you to be aware of many of the issues that are in hand as to what brought about this recall election. And most importantly, has you and I, as Californians, can and should be involved in all this process. Brian Johnson, of course, is the Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is a former California Commissioner on Aging. He is the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And he is also the author of a brand spanking new book just available now through Amazon called Evil Twins, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. Of course, looking at Roe and Doe. And as always, Brian, great to have you with us. Well, Greg, always an honor. Always an honor because you know what matters to this culture. 
you're looking for what really makes a difference, and uh, that's why what KFAX does is so important. Greg, you, well, I you appreciate lost, the good uh, words. There's a lot to talk about on the on the our conversation well, here today, and and Brian. In a moment, I want to pivot to uh, not only the gubernatorial recall election, but a a colleague of mine that has actually announced earlier this week that he is throwing his proverbial mm-hmm. hat in the ring as a, a potential candidate for folks to consider for that recall election come September. But before we get to that, I want to have you update us a little bit, if you would. Uh, we reported some while ago about Senate Bill 8 that had passed in the state of Texas. This is a bill that uh, essentially um, bans abortions in Texas um, from six weeks on. It provides sort of a first-of-the-kind approach to um, helping police all of this by allowing anyone to sue an abortion provider or anyone else, quite frankly, who helps facilitate abortions Mm -hmm. for women after the six-week limit. And uh, I understand that there has been now a lawsuit filed, the usual suspects involved, ACLU, Planned Parenthood et al., trying to block this law before it goes into effect in Texas beginning September 1st. Now, we knew certainly, and I think you and I discussed this, that there were aspects of Senate Bill 8 that might be a little bit of a long shot, and I would uh, suspect they probably saw the potential court challenges coming. But give us a sense in terms of um, how significant do you think all of this is, and how likely are some of these groups, including Planned Parenthood, going to be in convincing a court that there's somehow some deficiency in this law? Well, i got to tell you, I'm excited. I'm excited on a number of levels because first, and I want to remind everyone, um, we're not opposing women in any way, shape, or form. And as you know from my book, it's very clear that really what Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton did was actually empower doctors to kill whenever they felt that's the best answer, kill the baby, the famous health exception. And that's in Doe v. Bolton. If her health, that could be her psychological, her emotional health. But it wasn't up to her to decide. It was the physician alone. And he could use these psychobabble phrases to kill a baby before birth, all the way up to birth. And as you know, now, even afterwards, they let the child be born and abandon the child. But the reality is that women actually are the victim of this. And in many ways, in looking at Roe and in looking at Doe, and I want to remind folks, you may not know this, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not like Roe v. Wade or Doe v. Bolton. She saw that women were the indirect object. The entire goal, and I'm kind of summarizing the book, but I'll be quick, the entire goal of Roe and Doe was to alter the medical profession, which up until that day, had sworn to never kill human beings, including an abortion. Never kill a human being when they're vulnerable. That defined the medical profession on January 22nd, 73. All of that was thrown out. So these cases, let's go back to Texas and Senate Bill 8. But really, what I, I if you saw it, it, it's amazing. We know that in May, the United States Supreme Court announced they're going to revisit abortion laws in the state. And they took up the Mississippi law, which draws a line at 15 weeks. And in the announcement, they said they're only going to consider these bills that deal with pre-viability. And so they use the plural. They're looking at Mississippi's law, 
but they use the plural. Those laws in those states dealing with the child before viability. Now, that's interesting. On Tuesday of this week, the Supreme Court also announced it will hear Kentucky's Attorney General's request to defend Kentucky's dismemberment abortion ban. And again, dismemberment abortion refers to a method of abortion that dismembers the child before they're born in order to get them out of the, the womb. Is that, the, the, that would be the DNC uh, style abortion, correct? That's right. And so yeah. by calling it dismemberment, people start to realize what this is. So a dilation and curatage that people's eyes glaze over. But the curette, the curatage is a very sharp, scooped out scalpel. And they cut up the baby. So the fact that the Supreme Court, and I have to say this, this is directly a reflection of the fact that we've got some new members of the court. We've got three brand new members of the court that certainly had indicated they are inclined to view the child as a human child. <laughs> well, that's refreshing. So the Supreme Court is up to something here. Back to Texas, I really agree with the Texas approach, and this is why the difference between civil law and criminal law. Under civil law, if you do something to me and have harmed me in any way or a member of my family, under civil law, that's torture. I can, I can take you to court. I can sue you. Under criminal law, it's much more narrow. And when you have criminal laws, which we did have regarding abortion before Roe v. Wade, uh, but the problem now is culturally, that leaves it to the prosecutor. So one of the problems you see in criminal law is that a prosecutor doesn't want to. They have discretion. And if they think they're going to lose a case, one of the important things in criminal law is motive. And we talked about this regarding assisted suicide, we know that that uh, our friend uh, Dr. Uh, Kevorkian, he challenged those things, and basically he, he created those crimes, but at trial he said, oh, well, my motive was to comfort them. Yeah, I guess I did kill them, but I really wanted to help. So my motivation was good. And literally, Kevorkian using that issue, and under criminal law, motive needs to be established and proven. And that's why, if you recall, when O.J. went on trial, he actually was acquitted of the criminal case. When it went to a civil case, when the family said, I'm sorry, you killed our sister. You did this. Just like that, they won the case because you don't have to look at motive. So I believe, personally, we do have to look at civil-type laws against abortionists. Abortionists, up until January 22, 1973, it was a crime and, in many states, a civil offense. I think, looking into the future, because of our cultural battle, we're better advised to take civil action it's clearly killing a human being. The Hippocratic Oath has known that for centuries. This is obviously, science has said that. We know this is a unique human being. There's no way around that. And that child is intentionally killed. So 
it's an exciting change we're seeing at the high court. It's not getting enough analysis and coverage. And we literally, as you know, Craig, we could talk an hour. We're still looking. And I think one of the implications is is the chief justice. I just don't know what he's going to do. But I think that given Alito, given Clarence Thomas, given our three brand-new judges, I think we've got five judges. And, and you might even see the chief justice go along and say, look, can we, can we protect babies, please? Because you can't under Roe and Doe. You cannot protect those babies. That has to be addressed. I believe the Supreme Court's going to address it, so we need to be in prayer. I think there's no telling, again, because of what we... You know, the Chief Justice, originally, he was going to throw Obamacare out, and he had said that. And at the last second, he voted to uphold it. It was, it was unbelievable. So you can't say any of this is certain, but I see a change. I see a cultural sea change and a legal sea change on the horizon. So I'm excited about that. All right. Well, I appreciate the update on that. Now, Brian, we're not done. We've got a lot more territory to cover. So uh, you hang in there. And for listeners, if you've just tuned in, Brian Johnson is with us, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, heard Saturdays at 11 here on KFAX, and author of a brand new book, available now through Amazon. It's called Evil Twins, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, a look at Roe and Doe. And uh, it's quite an eye-opener. In fact, for all the years that I've been covering this topic and involved in the pro-life movement and broadcasted from the um, Right to Life Committee uh, conventions and things of this sort, this is probably one of the most succinct, clear-cut explanations of the impact of these two virtually simultaneous decisions, oddly enough, both handed down by the Supreme Court on the same date, one, though, having more tremendous impact in, in, in fundamentally changing the entire legality, not just to make abortion legal, but to remove any sense of responsibility or culpability from the medical professional's viewpoint, effectively planting a stick of dynamite underneath not centuries but millennia of what had been heretofore the Hippocratic Oath, and the guardrails, if you were, if you will, of the the medical profession in doing no harm, suddenly said, "Yeah, about all that doesn't count in this case." And of course, we have sadly reaped the whirlwind um, of loss of life since then. Millions of children aborted because of these two companion laws, and beginning to understand that the real consequences of the lesser known of the two critically important as we address these issues not only from a moral standpoint but as we've just been discussing from a legal standpoint as well much more to cover including the california recall election coming to a ballot box near you on the 14th of september we're going to get into more details on that more of our conversation with brian johnston as this edition of lifeline continues right after this And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Back to the conversation, and uh, we're continuing our visit with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, host of Life Matters, a broadcast that's a tune-in destination Saturday mornings at 11 a.m., where Brian has the opportunity to go much deeper on many of the issues we are discussing here today. And, uh, Brian, I want to take a moment and pivot to another topic, and with the understanding that uh, uh, your opinion doesn't represent that of the National Right to Life Committee, it's not a political endorsement, we're simply discussing the facts the facts are that californians to a pretty overwhelming percentile both democrat and republican um, have signed petitions asking for a calling to account so to speak of our current governor gavin newsom and that will be taking place on tuesday september the 14th where he will face recall election this is one of those issues where California is facing so many multiple crises that, at least in the opinion of of some, there is a tremendous sense of urgency that though Governor Newsom is three years into a four-year term and uh, assuming he didn't run again or didn't get reelected, this would all be over with in a year plus anyway, that um, quite frankly, we've just reached the breaking point in our state that we can't wait a year. And so it would seem to me that addressing things like the ongoing uh, issue of power in our state, response to the pandemic, the devastating wildfires that are burning even as we speak. And when you couple that with the outrageous cost of living, consistent increase in taxes, even as we're now paying some of the most ridiculous, well, the most ridiculous high taxes when it comes to gasoline in this state. Um, And then when you add to that the impact of violent crime in communities across the Bay Area and the state, uh, it it seems as if there's just no place to run, no place to hide. That's right. And on life, since, you know, every issue, but and every social issue, but in particular, if you care about human life, that human, innocent human life should be protected. Remember, when various states last year and the year before were passing new bills, as we just talked about, a Texas bill that was passed recently, but as those bills were being passed, our governor stood up and said, I want women from anywhere come to California, you can get free abortions here. Now, you need to realize he's telling the truth. There is no residency requirement for the state of California to pay for abortions, and there is no age limit on the child. So late-term abortions, and there need be nothing physically wrong with either mother or child. These are not for hard cases. So he literally... Well, other states are saying, gosh, we should probably protect this kid at some point. He inverted that and said, I want to throw taxpayer money at this for women anywhere. Come to California. So this is an incredible, there's many other issues. I'd like to spend more time talking about the assisted suicide issue. He's committed to it hugely. But this is a governor that is stunning in the radical positions he has taken and implemented. And I'm going to go ahead and mention, because I thank you for those caveats, but I, I'm personally excited that Larry Elder threw his hat in the ring. And, of course, Larry is a Salem host, and what an honor to be on Salem, uh, and what an honor to have a man like that that has stood up and has learned personally in his own life through his own errors 
the problem of, of personal rebelliousness, the problem of progressive ideology. And he has paid a price, and he talks about that every, every day on the radio. So I'm excited for him. But there's also other good candidates. One thing that we have to make sure happens, and Larry has mentioned this, but you're probably aware, the governor has an unlimited war chest. He doesn't have any limits on the amount of money that can be spent. Plus, the Democrat Party has no limits. Plus, the dominant media culture has no limits. Larry and each one of those candidates has very restrictive fundraising limits. So one of the opportunities is, in one sense, you have to first realize what the ballot means. There's two items on the ballot. Should this governor be replaced? Yes or no. That's the first item. Then the second item is who should replace him. And there's going to be a lot of other candidates. So, and we know some of them, right? I know, I personally know several. Know them to be good people. But what has to happen is you have to have enough votes that say, yes, replace Governor Newsom. The Democrat Party last time did not shepherd their own ranks. I use that word shepherd loosely. They are, they are goose stepping they are goose-stepping, uh, male, jackbooted thugs when it comes to patrolling their own party. They have told, the Democrat Party has told all elected Democrats, you do not run for governor. Why? Last time, Cruz Bustamante, who had been lieutenant governor, he said, well, I, I support Gray Davis, but just in case he loses, uh, I want to be governor if, if I want to get those votes. And psychologically, the people who did follow Cruz Bustamante thought, well, why not get rid of Gray Davis? And, and yeah, then let's go ahead and, and put Cruz Bustamante in. And so, in a sense, he got Democrats voting against Gray Davis. So they're terrified. And uh, tomorrow is the last day to file. I think they will be successful in preventing any high-level Democrats from filing because they are not going to spend their money suppressing the vote against Governor Newsom. So what we have to look at first is the reality that there are many Democrats who don't care about the party. They happen to be registered Democrats out of tradition, out of, for other fondness issues, their union members, whatever it might be, but they don't agree with what the Democrat Party is doing now. Those Democrats are going to have to vote their conscience. And the first question is, should we keep or should we be rid of Gavin Newsom? That has to get to 50% plus one. It's a simple majority, but as long as the simple majority of voters say, we got to get rid of this guy, then the second question goes into effect. Who will replace him? So it's very important. We... I think as people find candidates who are going to have favorites, that's fine. Again, I'm personally, I, I sent a note to Larry, to be honest, before, before he confirmed he's going to, I, I think he's just a great guy. And I'm not even saying his endorsement because I know other good candidates. I think a thousand candidates would be great because each would bring their own support base that are going to say no to Gavin Newsom. 
the first question, and you're going to hear more now, the Democrat Party and the dominant media and the hard left are going to try to protect Gavin Newsom and urge people to vote against withdrawing him from governorship. And so this is a critical, critical issue. There are Democrats that I know that don't care. They're going to vote to get rid of him. But you need individual Californians that are willing to buck the system. Many of those who signed were Democrats. Many were declined to state. Many people have gone to no party preference. In fact, I think a quarter of all voters right now, just over 25%, are now no party preference. They have to vote, get rid of Gavin Newsom first, and then we'll see who replaces him. So it's an exciting time. Well, and I think, again, you know, to the the core, as you've mentioned, uh, this is, in my mind, less of a question related to Democrat versus Republican, status quo versus a bit of a, you know, fresh face or different ideas. In some respects, we might, I think, successfully argue that there is more at stake in this recall election than even we saw what, 20 years ago when it was Gray Davis and eventually replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger as California governor. Uh, Because as I mentioned, when you look at the cost of living, the quality of living, the impact of everything from public safety power shut uh, shutdowns to uh, uh, restrictions on use of electricity in a state where we're, we're trying to claim that we want to be completely green and every car is going to have to be an electric car by 2035 and yet there is no thought given whatsoever to deal with California's ever increasing limits in terms of the amount of power that we can produce limits in terms of the amount of water that we have access to in a state that's got the largest coast of any state in the union. I, I, you know, you would think at least there'd be some hearings in Sacramento to talk about, well, how effective is a desalinization plant? And, and how can we mm-hmm. do something? If we can't control the weather, what can we do to help provide more potable water for Californians? Those discussions are not taking place. There are so many layers where you could claim uh, gubernatorial malpractice, if there is such a thing. I think Californians need to think, and I, I think Larry Elder made this comment, that he he wasn't running for governor of California. He's running for the people of California. The job might be the governor's job, but it's the people of California that are hurting. And when you add the impact of violent crime in big communities um, and, and so many of the economic challenges that we are facing, um, you know, we, we need a governor who's going to be willing to come in, roll up his sleeves, and uh, do what needs to be done. And when I read... Brian, when I read that the governor recently raided the coffers of the state's forest management program to the tune of $150 million, even as we started to see fire season kick into high gear two months or three months earlier than it normally does, you have to wonder, is this about the guy not wearing a mask and going to dinner at the French Laundry, or are there deeper, more critical, more urgent issues at place? It may drive people to the polls because they don't like the governor's handling of COVID. But I think the deeper issues at hand here, from life to quality of life to taxes and on and on the list goes, I think really ought to cause people to seriously think about not only being involved in this election, but how much is at stake if they're not. Yes. Yes. Amen. 
Well, Brian, we appreciate your time and the insights. And uh, as we mentioned about uh, critical issues related to uh, life, uh, we invite you to, number one, get a good education. It's one of those page-turning types books where you're going to walk away with a better, deeper, fuller understanding of the entire pro-life issue and how we got to where we're at today by picking up a copy of Evil Twins, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, Roe and Doe. And, of course, that is available through Amazon.com. And then make an effort this Saturday morning to tune in to Life Matters. And um, that, of course, can be heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And on all these and broader topics, too, information available at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. 537 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So as I welcome you back to the program, a bit of perhaps perspective for younger listeners and a reminder for those of us that are slightly older Americans. Back in the early 1990s, there was a fitness guru by the name of Susan Powder, P-O-W-T-E-R. And she came out with a diet plan. And in a companion book that became a bestseller, not necessarily, in my opinion, because there was major secrets in there regarding how to lose weight, but more because of the title that poked fun at multiple layers of diet madness. And the title of the book was a great saying, and apropos for the next discussion, the book was called Stop the Insanity. And when I read stories pertaining to gender dysphoria, what is going on in relationship to um, proposed instruction in public classrooms, I think to myself, boy, we need Susan Powder back again to yell at the top of her lungs, stop the insanity. Because at this point... There appears to be no stopping it. Brad Dacus joins us now. He is the president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute. He, a constitutional lawyer. And Brad, when I say stop the insanity, there's a couple of cases that you guys are working on right now that really are demonstrative of extreme levels of insanity. Be it with just the the, the wild fashion in which gender, gender dysphoria is being handled in the public square and more specifically in the public classroom, but also... This notion that somehow an agenda, a tone gets set by a school, by a district, and suddenly teachers are no longer entitled to any sense of freedom of speech, right to their own opinion. So help us understand what's going on here. There is a case that we're following out of Grants Pass, Oregon right now. Um, where, where oddly a couple of teachers, uh, potentially, uh, well, a, a teacher and, 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 and there's also a, um, a parent involved, but in, in this case here, a teacher who literally has a job on the line simply because of asking questions and taking a position. Tell us what's going on here and why is this so dangerous? Why and how can we stop the insanity? Yeah, it, it is it's actually dealing with two teachers who um, decided that they uh, were very concerned about the direction of the school district and their policies, their middle school teachers. So what they did on their own time, not during classroom time, not on school, school grounds, on their own private website, uh, they decided to voice their uh, position on national, state, and local issues uh, dealing with 
uh, issues of conscience and the transgender movement. Specifically, you know, they propose um, something really crazy, like if a child wants, says he wants to change his gender, then the policy should be to bring the parents in, make sure that the parents are aware of it, make sure the parents are able to deal with the child and, and, uh, and, and as they see fit. Uh, so this, they also thought that teachers should have a conscience uh, protection so that no teacher is forced to uh, violate their conscience and affirm uh, something that they believe is, is wrong or, or violates their conviction and should be uh, accommodated reasonably. Uh, and then they also believe that they shouldn't allow uh, you know teenage boys to go into the girls' locker room while the girls are changing, uh, even even though the boy... Uh, has a dysphoria. They're still over majority of them are still uh, still turned on by the opposite biological sex. So these are real reasonable policies. And what happened is, and they never even said what school they were t- teaching at. Well, what happened is someone found them on the internet, reported them to the school district's administration, and because they did not agree with the policies of the state, uh, they are now uh, put on leave and about to be permanently fired. We'll probably find out tomorrow, and that's why we at Pacific Justice are defending them. Help me understand here in terms of the reasoning. Um, it, certainly districts have policies in terms of what they will and not accept insofar as public behavior. In fact, uh, uh, there was a time not all that long ago when many public school teachers had to uh, had to sign morality clauses in their contracts. Uh, going even further back into the 20s and 30s, there were some school districts around the country that said only single women could be teachers. They thought the responsibility of being a mother at the same time was just too overwhelming. So uh, th- that districts may have policies pertaining to behavior, um, you know, I, I get that. That districts have policies pertaining to thought or the ability of a teacher to express an opinion publicly. I mean, my goodness, Brad, how far have we devolved that everything rides on public opinion, what happens on social media, and that if you dare think something or express even a question that seems to run contrarian to the the accepted thought process in a very Orwellian fashion, that you're suddenly facing the possibility of losing your livelihood. This is insane. Yeah, it is insane. I like to make it really clear that these teachers, um, and there's no complaints about what they did and said in the classroom, none at all. This was totally criticism of their opinion that they had that they expressed on their own time on their own uh, private forum. Uh, so this is like communist China, where, it's, where they say, you must agree with the positions of the state or you will not be allowed to work for uh, the, the government in China. Uh, this is not, you know, that's, that's what we're looking at here, that attitude of such an elitist uh, authoritarian attitude um, that is so parallel to what is in communist China uh, it is it is alarming, and that's why we at Pacific Justice are defending them in uh, federal court. We're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court uh, if necessary. Uh, it's it's that important that people who work for the government, any government in the United States, should not have to surrender their First Amendment rights every minute of every day while they are alive working for the government. Um, that is not constitutional. And the fact that this school district, Craig, is... Just digging in on this uh, is also very alarming that they still don't get it 
it's uh, it, it is very telling of what we're dealing with in many of the, the government, public schools, and administrators uh, in school districts like this one. Now, counselor, down through the years, rarely the case that we disagree, but I, I, I have to have a, a mild disagreement here with you in your characterization that this is just like what goes on in communist China, that if you don't mimic the party line or mimic the uh, the policies of Beijing, that uh, you'll get yourself in trouble. The difference is the people of communist China do not enjoy the protections of a constitution that prohibits the government from right. truncating your freedom of speech. Whereas here in the United States, we do. It just that it seems as if there's a school district in northern, uh, uh, in the, sorry, in, in Oregon that has decided we don't care about that. We're just going to ignore that. We're going to set up a scenario that says somehow a teacher must check their freedom of speech or their personal beliefs at the door and if it if their personal opinions do not run in lockstep with the opinions voiced or the positions stipulated by the district that they had either better shut up or run the risk of losing their jobs and and this is not as if you know she's been caught advocating for you know the overthrow of the government we already went there so what what makes them think that somehow first amendment rights do not apply to public school teachers. And, and let's be clear, I understand that this was not advocation of something, uh, you know, uh, un, untoward in, in within the public classroom. She didn't get up in front of a classroom full of students and voice her opinion. She didn't criticize a school book text. She didn't do any of those things. Just expressed an opinion and, and asked some questions on a public forum in a website that she has access to, and I don't get where they seem to think that somehow First Amendment rights do not apply to public school district employees. Um, I'm, I'm equally baffled on this. I, uh, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's all the more culpable for the fact that it's happening in a country where we actually have a constitution which spells out very clearly the free speech rights under the First Amendment. They don't have that in communist China. And uh, so everyone's on notice. The school district's on notice uh, about the Constitution. Uh, so it is, it is perplexing to see this, but the attitude and philosophy uh, behind it um, is very alarming because I don't think they're isolated. I think there are, are many in our public schools and, and in government uh, that do have that attitude that uh, you, have, you have to go the way to our, our radical policies, our radical way of thinking, Oh, we're going to purge you uh, from uh, working uh, for uh, the government. I, I think, unfortunately, that is becoming, it will become more and more problematic, and that's why we need to, to, to snuff out this kind of tyranny every time and every place we see it. There's another example as well related to uh, not a, a school teacher, but rather a school parent who raised questions concerning curriculum, and we know that there are issues not only related to gender dysphoria, but we're hearing more about critical race theory. There's a lot of very loose definitions as to what it is, where it's being taught, the context in which it's being taught, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, you know, students of all ages have a right to know the history of our country, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly, all of that. Um, but it should not be politically driven by a political agenda. That said... Um, we have an example of a parent who 
appealed to a school board wanting to know simply what's the curricula like? Well, what what kind of instruction is being offered? Uh, this is out of I think Rhode Island uh, pertaining to these topics, and was met with nothing but resistance by the school district, where in a state, at least it used to be in California, where uh, every parent has a right to know not only exactly what is in the curricula taught in each classroom, but to receive a copy of same, or be at least permitted to go to the school and view or read copies of same, uh, along with teacher notes, etc., etc. Here in this case, I understand that the rejoiner by the district was not to provide the information that the parent was legitimately seeking, but rather to begin to threaten a lawsuit and to go as far as to put her down as a, one of the uh, line items for discussion during a school board meeting. What? Yes, yes. It is real uh, heavy-handed uh, intimidation uh, by the, the school board. Uh, no parent should ever be uh, intimidated or, or on the, the agenda to possibly be sued simply because they want the information that they're entitled to to know what their children are being taught. Uh, this woman is, was not threatening violence. Uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, attacking anyone uh, physically. Or uh, She was just saying, I want the curriculum information. I want what my child's being, being taught. She has every right to that information. We at Pacific Justice Institute have defended parents many times uh, on uh, their rights to review curriculum, all curriculum, including information about outside speakers and presentations by groups like Planned Parenthood, for example. Um, and, uh, and so to see this at, at this level and this degree of intimidation uh, is uh, just irreprehensible. And uh, I know there's going to be a, a major kickback, a pushback um, by the many parents in that, in that uh, school district, but also uh, I think uh, this school district is uh, begging for uh, other retribution to, to come as well. Yeah, I mean, when you're just outright, you know, ignoring a parent's right to know what's going on, I mean, at the end of the day, as a parent, don't you care? Of course you care. And if you care, shouldn't you as a parent have right to access to this information? Or if you're a teacher, have a right to express an opinion? Again, I, I understand that, you know, some people say some really crazy things. But asking legitimate questions in a public forum should not truncate your First Amendment rights simply because you happen to work for a school district. You don't check your First Amendment rights at the door when you sign up to become a member of the teachers' union or enter a classroom. Now, if the teacher had gone off on a tangent and expressed public ideas that were an anathema and this was being done to the school, uh, to the students rather, at the school, on school time, okay, maybe, maybe you've got a point to say, hey, Hey, there, there are certain limits within the confines of your employment that we don't want you to engage in. But when you're outside of the office, when you're outside of the schoolroom and you can't voice an opinion, as mundane as it may be, such as asking questions about the way the whole gender dysphoria issue is being approached and handled in the country today, and you potentially lose your job over that. I mean, is this what we've come to? And if that be the case, then I'm going to echo Susan Powder's question of... 20-something years ago. It's time to stop the insanity. It really is. We need to talk to each other and stop the insanity. 
Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. We appreciate the time and the insights. More information, by the way, on the web at pji.org. That's pji.org. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Let's get you an update on some traffic. <laughs> 